0: everyone and welcome back to the Just Interesting People podcast. My name is Rosie and I'm here with my co-host and husband Jeremy. And this is episode number 100 with Alvi.
1: In December 2021, Alvi, our very first guest on the show, published his first book, You Can Do Life Lessons From My Mum's Untimely Death. And we thought that was a perfect opportunity to bring Alvi back on the show so he can tell us everything about the origin of the book, what motivated him to write a book and also we dive into it where if you know him or if you've listened to the first episode you might discover a different Alvi than what you might expect we really hope you enjoy this episode and once again thank you so much for being a listener to the podcast 100 episode we are really happy to be reaching this milestone and we excited to keep going
0: hello Avi welcome back to the podcast
2: thank you for having me it's my pleasure to be here
1: guest number one and guest number 100 today we are celebrating the episode 100 of the just interesting people podcast and we could not have a better guest than you alvi
2: hey i'm so honored to be here and honestly i think i'm gonna have to put this in like my bios and my profiles that i was episode number one and 100 on just interesting people Yeah.
1: what are we doing next time 200 or 1000 <laughs> it's a tough one
2: maybe both we'll see yeah yeah
1: The timing could not have been better, in a sense, um, because this is episode 100, and I think it was fun to bring you back on the show, but also a few weeks ago, you published your first book, so, you know, the stars align.
2: (laughs) Right, timing was impeccable here, it's funny, um, you know, there's been times in my life where i kind of put things to the side, or I wait on things, and... For whatever reason, it always ends up having perfect timing because now I can say that book was done right in time for the 100th episode of this show (laughs) and getting very close also to the 100th episode of my podcast, How You Can Too. So the timing is great.
0: I can't, one minute before we start, I can't believe someone I know has written a book. I'm like so (laughs) proud of you.
2: I appreciate that so much. And it's so funny. And if you read the book, you'll know this and you two already know this about me, but it's still taken some time for it to really hit me that... I'm an author and I have a book out and people are out there reading it and sharing it and providing me feedback. It's a, it's a really surreal experience, but I'm really working to like let it all in and not just look at it as like, you know, another checkbox or, you know, something insignificant.
0: It's huge. It's such an accomplishment.
2: I appreciate that. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, congratulations.
1: I appreciate that. (laughs) Actually, that was the first thing I wanted to talk about before we dive into the book. Uh, I wanted to talk with you about how this book uh, became real. When did you first have the idea of, Am I writing a book about my story? Uh, why? And what was the process, you know, quickly? Like, because having the idea is one thing, getting started is something else, and executing well and doing it so fast right. is something else again. So,
2: yeah, for sure. Well, I first got the idea of the book very shortly after my mom passed away. So, she passed away in. May of 2015 and I had the idea of the book somewhere around like 2017 but it was one of those things where in my mind I was saying you know I have to have so many things lined up perfectly I have to have everything correct because if not it's not going to be you know the best book that it could be and Mm -hmm. I was carrying that with me literally until you know June of 2021 Mm -hmm. and on my mom's birthday June 17th 2021 I told myself that I'm going to have this book finished in one year. And at the time, I thought one year was fast. I was like, yeah, if mm-hmm. I get it all done in a year, like, that would be pretty impressive. And I'm putting some pressure on myself. Fast forward a little bit, I find myself in August, and I, I hadn't done anything for it yet. And I just so happened to be at uh, Miami Made, which is an amazing networking group that I'm a part of. And that's where one of the gentlemen, my good friend now, Mo Hassan, was basically sharing how he's written many books and he's helped others do the same and if there's anyone that's looking for that like have a conversation with him mm-hmm. so i took mo out to lunch told him a little bit about myself and while we're at lunch i told him and at this time i thought i was being really ambitious i was like hey mo like i want to get this book done and i want to do it by by june 2022 uh, my mom's birthday he's like well, why are you waiting so long it's like what he i was like what what do you mean he's like what are you waiting so long it's like You can have that thing done by the end of the year and like immediately like my butthole puckered up and I'm just like, (laughs) oh, like, ah, like super uncomfortable. Like what? And basically he told me about his process and everything that goes into it. And I decided to hire him to help me with it. And honestly, y'all, like it flew by just Mm -hmm. in terms of how quickly I was able to get it done. And I think one of the biggest limiting beliefs that I had going in there was this story of like, oh, I don't wanna sit in front of the computer and just sit there and type. And it's hard for me to get my ideas out that way and blah, 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 blah. And we didn't do any of that, right? It was really like, you know me, I love to talk, I love to share, I love to you know be on screen and everything like that. So we use that to, to our advantage. And basically I voice recorded all of the mm-hmm. chapters, all of the stories, right? After outlining and mapping it and knowing what story I wanted to put with what lesson and how did that lesson apply with which one of my clients and their lives. And once I had that outline, it was as simple as me saying it all out loud to my to a video recorder or voice recorder, excuse me, and transferring that over to text. And then once we got to that part, then it was just like. Layers upon layers upon layers of editing where mm-hmm. I was just focusing on one thing. First round was like, all right, let me make sure it transcribed the words properly, right? Everything spelled right. Just did that. Mm-hmm. Then the next thing was like, all right, where do I need to flesh out ideas, right? Does this make sense? And basically just process after process after process until, you know, over time, the, the book got done really fast. And something that I noticed too, and this is, has even helped me in how I look at my work with clients now is at first in the process i thought i was going to take like you know an hour here two hours there kind of chunk it down that way because that's how i'm used to doing things mm-hmm. but what i realized is like the power of just long work sessions where i would work on the book for 5 to 6 hours at a time where i would set up my schedule where i had these big blocks where you know i eat my breakfast and boom i dive right into it that's all i'm doing the entire day and i'm lucky that I make my own schedule that I was able to move things around so I could attack it that way. And I started in mid August and then I finished the book before I had to go to, you know, all the other parts I have to do their thing that's out of my control. You know, I was done with that part by end of November.
0: Wow.
2: Yeah. So, yeah. So it was a cool process. And now with that process that I did, I know that I can create books fast every time and really anything that i want to create it can happen fast i don't really have to wait for it especially when majority of it's in my control
1: it's amazing when you think about it how technology enabled us to do that back in you know just 15 years ago probably you had to type it on a typewriter and you know every <laughs> time you had a mistake you had to like literally like maybe rewrite the whole thing or whatever <laughs> and it's it would take forever right and now you can just literally like speak to your phone while you're doing something else upload down your laptop transcript and and you got it
2: and there it is right and <laughs> yeah. the same thing when it comes to like research it's not like we have to like schlep over to the library like search through every single row yeah. to yeah. find the proper book check it out take them like no like we have the internet like things can be done super fast and fast and effective and efficiently
1: yeah
0: yeah
1: yeah it's not damaging the quality exactly it's just a better process 100 percent. why a book though because you've shared your story many times you have a podcast why did you decide to write like, a book why did you pick this medium you know
2: yeah it's it's a great question and the biggest thing that comes up for me is there's just something about having a physical book and and words and something to read i've developed a, a strong love for reading over these last you know 10 years, like really after college is what I enjoyed reading. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a book is forever, right? Like, I don't know how podcasts are going to kind of go on into the future. I imagine they'll still be here. But, you know, we have books that are classics from 200 years ago that people still read today. And for me, I think it's powerful to be able to have, you know, the words and to be able to have the opportunity for people to open up the book and be in a intimate setting, whether it's in their house, it's in their hammock, at the beach, wherever it is, and have the opportunity to open it up and experience it that way and kind of be really internalized what's going on in that story.
0: Mm.
1: Are you planning to, last technical question, then we (laughs) dive into it. Are you planning an audiobook as well?
2: Absolutely. So I'm going to be doing, yes, I'll have the audiobook going. I'm getting ready to actually start a a speaking course, doing it like a mm. speaking workshop. So I feel like I'm a good speaker and I want to be a great speaker, right? So I feel like once I have that course under the belt, that's gonna be a great time to dive right in and jump into the audiobook version. Because it's funny, you know, just to give you some inside information of the process, a lot of the editing was done with me reading this stuff out loud. Mm. And there were so many times during it that I would be saying it out loud and I would just start crying, like out of nowhere, start crying, reliving the mm-hmm. story or talking about what was going on. So I could see how it could be like a true skill to be able to speak through that clearly, read through that clearly um, <laughs> without crying all over the audiobook. Cause I, I don't know, maybe that adds a little touch to it, but I don't think I wanna yeah. be crying like, you know, every other chapter <laughs> <laughs> as I'm doing it. So you know, yeah, I'm super excited to bring the audiobooks because I love audiobooks, right? So my whole philosophy is being able to provide other people the stuff that I like, right? To see if it fits with them and see if they like it. So I'll definitely do it for my for my audible people out there.
0: Okay, I cannot wait for that for a couple of reasons, because I'm dyslexic, so I find it quite hard to read anyway. So I read and listen to an audiobook at the same time. But secondly, you have such a good voice. Like there's oh. some audiobooks I've tried to read and I can't because I just can't get on board with a voice. But I know that yours is going to be so soothing and so lovely to listen to. So I cannot wait for that.
1: Oh, awesome! Appreciate that compliment. <laughs> yeah. I it was funny because I actually had your voice in my head when I was reading the book. In a sense, <laughs> oh, it was really so crazy. interesting because, um, so reading the book was really interesting for me because I I read it in like five hours I think, and mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I could hear you telling this story in my head and I, and and the way you picked your words and everything i know it was you you know because i know the way you speak and I, I could i could see you in this book uh, but also the stories you were sharing I was like, who the hell is this guy? This is yeah, not the LV that I know. And so it was funny. very confusing. It's like, I, I know this person, but I don't know this person in a right, sense. Right. And that was very confusing.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I think is such a cool part of this book. And one of my biggest intentions is to really show people like where I was versus where I am now, right? And how those stories are essentially what had me grow into the person I am today. Because mm. when most people meet me, and I, I don't know if this is just a natural thing we all do, but we kind of just assume like, oh, okay, that's how this person's always been, Yeah. right? We don't really know their story, what they've been through, what's caused them to be the person they are today, but that's who they are. They probably just subconsciously, they've been that way.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And for me, you know, I want people to know just how much I've grown. And as you see in the book, like my attitude was extremely explosive. Like I used to be, it's interesting, like, I used to have so much anger, but I would let it just like pour out so easily. Like I didn't have the composure. I didn't have any type of skills to really work with it. And a lot of times I didn't even know why I was angry, right? Mm -hmm. I would think it was at other people, but in retrospect I realized it was all because of myself and how I was living my life. So I want people to read this book and to understand like anybody can change if they want to, right? Mm And hopefully it doesn't have to take some type of crazy tragedy for that change to come. Because in my life, it was my mom's death and how she died. For other people, it might be a a cancer diagnosis or it might be, you know, whatever it may be, somebody else dying or, or getting fired from like their dream job, anything. But it's like, why wait for that tragic moment to happen to make a change? Like we can decide to change from a place of, just true desire for growth and for, you know, achieving and for being our best self, as opposed to like getting at the bottom, being smacked in the face and be like, okay, well now I have no choice. So let me go ahead and figure this out.
0: Yeah. I think it often takes something, I don't know. It's true, like you said, like, why do we have to wait for that? But it often does take that like, awful thing to happen to then realize, oh shit, this is not what I want to be doing. And it's, you know, it's a shame that, I think, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that.
2: Yeah, for sure. And what I think that is, or at least part of it is, you know, this idea of being comfortable, right? Or when we think about the comfort zone, like I think a lot of people, you know, when they try to just barely go outside their comfort zone and they realize this is uncomfortable, they're like, "Nah, I'll just come back to where I'm at. But I think it takes something so uncomfortable happening that it's like, you know what, what I've been doing is actually so uncomfortable and I can't continue to do this and I'm tired Mm -hmm. of that. So now I'm going to make a change. So that's yeah. why I think it could be difficult to just easily flip the switch versus yeah. like some crazy event having to happen first.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: That was actually my question number seven. <laughs> <laughs> I just change everything. Boom.
0: So, for the first time ever, Jeremy's got questions written down. He's got notes. He knows what he's doing. So, <laughs>
1: yeah. No, yeah, that was actually something I wanted to talk about. I in the chapter 12, Life mm-hmm. is Now. You yeah. Know, you touch on that. Absolutely. And, and you say, Something by page 118. Um, knowing that my mum would die and I would never have the opportunity to be with her again moved the cliche of life is now from something I've heard to something I understood. I was living in tomorrow thinking that anything could wait until the next day. That was my biggest mistake. Mm. And I think we all do this mistake. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and sadly, most of the time, we need to have something shitty happening in our life to realize that. And why do you think that? Why do you think it's not something we can just come up with normally uh, without, you know, a tragedy?
2: Yeah, such a great question. I mean, immediately the thing that comes up to me is how I don't think individually, or even as like a society, we have a, a real relationship with the concept of death right? Like I think death is this thing that so many of us are afraid of that we don't even think about it. And because of that, we don't understand the finality of our lives. And I think if each and every one of us knew like, okay, this is my end date. This is what I'm going out by. I think most people would move to so much more action because they could see that like, hey, the the clock is ticking. Mm -hmm. Yet most of us live our lives where we're so focused on so many, well, really we're not focused. We're unfocused because we just have so many things going on that we're not being present. And if we're not present to the moment that we have, which is literally the only moment we ever have, it's so easy to want to put things off or to go and just not do something because of this fallacy that we have until later. But the funny thing about later is, yeah, later might be tomorrow later might be 10 seconds from now or later might be 50 years from now we have no idea but the whole thing is like we can't wait and i think once we have this understanding of you know the finality that all of our lives have at least in this physical space this physical universe i think that could move us forward better but unfortunately at least in my situation i had to see somebody die my mom die and not be there and then immediately the first thoughts that came up were like all of the things that she would never see, mm. right? In terms of me getting married, me me growing up, uh, me having kids, her seeing her grandchildren, like that stuff hurt me so much. And I realized that even on a smaller level, like just being able to give her a hug, be able to talk to her, be able to be there for her, be able to continue arguing, whatever we were doing, you know, those opportunities weren't going to be there anymore. And one of the things I had to really reconcile with was just death and understanding that we only have now and we don't
1: know what later is ever going to
2: entail
0: okay yeah. so I'm already crying <laughs>
1: also even if we have time it doesn't mean that things are going to turn out the way we expect them to turn out right um, you know it's it's not even just a matter of life and death it's also simple example COVID you know uh, yeah, plenty of people were planning to come see us when we were in miami and they never did because of covid right like you don't you don't know you don't know what's going to happen even if you have all the time in the world you have no idea what your health is going to be like what the financial situation is going to be like what the world is going to be like whatever Um and yeah you might be missing out on opportunities just because you postpone them to tomorrow or to next week uh, yeah. when you had the chance to do it right now might as well do it because I think we've learned that as a global society mm-hmm. we have no idea what's going to be happening in the next few weeks honestly right we still no idea two years, so right
2: right still flattening that curve
1: yeah <laughs> so you know on, the, on a global scale it's um yeah it's, it's it's more than just life and death in a sense it's uh, there's a lot of factors that can screw up our plans and mm. that's a great point the
0: reason I got upset then and it resonated with me is that from what you were saying you really have to take people not take them for granted and not just think they're going to be there forever um and kind of really just I don't know enjoy spending time with them and not just assume they're going to be there for all these big moments because they might not be and I think that's something that I'm going through right now but it's, Mm. it's just you know when you were talking about that it kind of got me but
2: no, for sure, 100%. And I and I definitely think about, you know, people our age. When I say our age, you know, anyone from their their late 20s to their even to like their early 40s. Mm-hmm. When we start to think about our parents. You know, I have a lot of clients that I work with and, you know, a major pillar that I like to work with them on if it's something that is important to them at the time is this concept of like the family bucket, right? Like those close relationships. And I forgot who I heard say this once on a podcast, but basically brought up this, like made it clear to me just how small the chances are that we continue to see our parents, especially if if we live in different places. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was talking to one of my clients about this a few months ago where, you know, it's really important to him that he he sees his parents more. Right. And we're talking about how often that he sees them. And it was like, you know, maybe like twice a year. And then when we did the math and we're like, all right, we'll say, you know, your parents say they have anywhere from just roughly, let's just say, even if it's 20 years, so they get 20 more years. That's 40 more times that you're going to see them in your life. What if something crazy happens, God forbid, and, you know, they only have 10 years. Well, now that's 20 opportunities. And when I heard this person on the podcast say that some years back, I was like, man, that's incredible because I never really thought about that. Mm. Like, if we're not seeing somebody consistently and we're only seeing them once a year and then they have so many years left. It's like a handful of opportunities to be able to have that time with them. Yeah.
1: To go back to your your story and more like your origin story. Um, for everyone reading the book, I think something that stood out for me was you grew up in, let's say, a difficult environment. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have... You know the easiest childhood um you grew up without your dad like you knew your dad but he wasn't really there for you right your your granddad was more like your your father figure yep for sure uh, your mom raised you basically mm-hmm. and well and also you know you were a middle low class uh, yeah say poor like poorer you know right. class on the on, on spectrum and everything yeah um your mom had, you know, health difficulties and everything. So the whole, your environment was not, you know, set for success. Right. And when I was reading your story, I was like, if, if this was a movie, honestly, this is the perfect setup for the guy when he's 14, uh, to end up selling drugs and having shit happening in his life. You know, I couldn't right. really see like everything happening like that. Like you see many times in TV show and movie and everything. Um, locally you had, you were a very good student, yep. <laughs> so that helped <laughs> probably mm-hmm. in a way and you're a good at- athlete, but, um, do you think when you look back at it, things could have taken another turn for you?
2: Oh, I definitely think they could have. I mean, it, it's interesting because when I look at the place that I grew up, so it's called Bonaventure, but it's part of a, a city called Weston. And for anyone that looks up Weston, Weston is actually one of the most affluent cities In the United States. But it was interesting because Bonaventure ended up becoming a part of Weston and kind of like, you know, urban development and all that good stuff. But it's funny, like, my upbringing was very almost middle class, but it was, and I didn't talk about this in the book, but the reason why it was closer to middle class, because my mom would go into insane amounts of debt in order to have us be able to have, you know, the things that we wanted, the things that we needed, and also to, kind of be similar to our peers in a way, but that's something I didn't know about till I was an adult and I understood finances and things like that. And it's interesting because I look at some of the kids that I grew up with and I think no matter where someone grows up, and I forgot what this concept is actually called but we learned it in sociology, but it's basically this idea that you're always gonna have pockets of all different types of people just like you would see in greater society, right? So like when I was growing up, like, yeah, I had you know friends and people around me who would sell drugs, who were getting into a lot of fights, who would do this, do that. And it's like, yeah, like they didn't really have much to worry about in in Weston per se, as if that was like Liberty City or something in that case. But I've seen so many people throw their life away and either get caught up in getting, um, getting caught up in hard drugs. Like I had access to the hardest drugs Growing up just because that was my mom's, you know, medicine cabinet, right? Like having access to the Oxycontins and all these different things or what, you know, kids would call when we were young, they call them bars or being barred up. Like we, we had kids in high school like that all the time. And what I think helped me really be focused on what I wanted to do was actually my, my older brother. My brother, Hank, love him to death. Um, he's seven years older than me. And like, I really looked up to him um, when I was young. It was one of those relationships where like, I always wanted to hang out with him, but he never wanted to hang out with me because <laughs> fucking, I'm, a, I'm a kid, right? You're, you're older, so I get that. But it was funny because my brother, also a great athlete, but he wasn't a great student, right? And he he got labeled um, very young by like his teachers and other people because of these aptitude tests saying that you know, he needs to be in these types of classes or he's not smart enough, this, that, the other. And that's stuff that he truly believed and even Mm -hmm. carries with him today. And what I saw was, you know, he would be out, he would be getting into trouble, he would be doing certain things. And I would see how much him and my mom fought because of that. And as a result, I would see those things. I would say, you know what? Like, I don't want to do that. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to have that type of dynamic or I don't want to get into that type of trouble. And because of that, I was basically like not home a lot, especially during high school. Like during high school, I was always, it was football, it was school stuff, it was out with friends. And by the time I got home, time to do like a little bit of homework, you know, go on AIM, AOL, talk some shit online and then go to sleep, right? So yeah, I think I was very lucky in the sense that I could see stuff around me and know right away, like either, yeah, that's for me or that's not for me.
1: something that might be for me the most, um, I don't know, the, the highlight of the book. There's this two events, two moments in a book that really uh, marked me and I'll talk about the second one after. But the first one in order is in, in chapter 2 when you talk about going for a week in Abu Dhabi and Dubai with a bunch of friends. Uh, nothing wrong with that Pro from the fact that you went over there when your mum was in the coma at the hospital. Yeah. And knowing you as the person you're now, like to be totally honest, my thought was how the hell did you went in a vacation when his mum was in the hospital? Yeah. Knowing RV, you know, the the RV that I know would have never done that, I think. Right. And um yeah, like can you looking back at it, can you can you share your, your thoughts on that?
2: yeah for sure so in this part of my life so this is literally right before um my mom had passed away so i am 26 years old and honestly up until that point a lot of my life anything that was wrong i I would just shove it down right i wouldn't tell people about it like literally my house could have burnt down and nobody would have known because Mm. i wouldn't have mentioned it Mm. because in in my head i used to think like oh i don't want to be a burden to somebody else. Like, I don't wanna let my story, my experience, what I'm going through, bring somebody else down. It was kind of like a weird twist on the whole saying of, you know, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say it at all, type Mm -hmm. of deal, mixed in with this masculinity of like, hey, you're a man, like, you're not allowed to complain or talk about these things. Yeah, the pride, like just holding it in. And honestly, the vacation was a way for me to mentally and emotionally escape. It was a way for me to get away from what was going on and really just try to have my mind off of it. Because my mom had, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I didn't go into all of the different scares. But my mom had, about. I would say I had about four big scares with my mom where it's like, knowing what I know now, it's like, oh, she could have died at that point. And for whatever reason, I knew that, this one wasn't going to work out like this was probably going to be the one that was going to get her. And when I was on that trip, like I literally did forget that my mom was in the situation that she was in because I was so enamored with being with my friends and being in this luxurious, like amazing place. And I did a really great job of forgetting what was going on and to have the harsh reality of, you know, being on my way back and, and then having everything tumble Was again just like just this huge like slap in the face wake up call of like no like this stuff is real (laughs) this stuff is going on you can't hide from it no matter how far you go to the other side of the world like this is still here.
0: It's interesting though because at the same, I don't know. Like I'm going through things at the minute now, and I can see how you know going somewhere or doing something can take your mind off it, and it's quite a nice break to not think about it all day every day. Right, so I guess my question is, do you think it's like looking back now, do you think it was a good thing that you went away to at least have that week or however long it was of a break just to chill and be you, or do you think maybe it's better just to face things and not try and run away i don't I don't know what yeah. do you think on yeah,
2: it's a great question for me, I'm very grateful that I went on that trip and I went mm. there because you know it really took one of my friendships to like just a higher level because of everything that transpired while I was there and and how my friend Shabazz was able to be there for me. And also too, not to be cliche and say, you know, everything happens for a reason, but I feel like every action up to that point had me learn learn about it in a powerful way and help me better understand it. So if I was to look at it now, would I have done it differently if I was faced with the same situation? Yeah, I I would be around and stay there for the person um, that I'm with. But it's just interesting because, like you said, there is value in being able to still live your life, even though a big part of your life is being challenged in a major way. Because, you know, I'm very big into, you know, mental, emotional health. And if I'm constantly thinking about only, you know, negative things and negative when I'm I mean, by that, it's like a negative consequence, like something that I perceive as bad it is happening. If I'm in that space all the time, then it's going to be very difficult for me to live my life in a productive way or in a way that aligns with how I want to live it. So it's an interesting question. Right. But I think, um, you know, going back, I wouldn't have changed it. But if that opportunity presented itself now, I'm sure it would look different.
1: A lot of things that happened to you was influenced by your mum. Uh, that's what you write write a book about, and I've I realized that your mum had a tough life as well. Oh, for sure. You, you, you don't go deep into your mum's past, but you can feel through everything she's been through. She was in a bad place physically, but also mentally, emotionally, even spiritually. Um, life was complicated for her. She was really having a a tough time it's it's really obvious in the book Mm -hmm. would you mind telling us maybe a little bit about her past and maybe why you know she had this this life and you know um where do you think it's coming from now
2: yeah no for sure and it's interesting because i learned so much more about my mom um and just her background after she passed away because you know her dying actually brought me and my uncles a lot closer so my mom is one of three, right? She grew up in Paramus, New Jersey. She's the oldest sister. And then she has two younger brothers. Uh, my uncles, Keith and Scott, love them to death. And it's interesting because my mom had a time in her life where, or before I get to that, growing up, my mom was always like overweight, right? She always had problems with weight. And it, it's interesting. Like if you can imagine, my mom's born in 1954, you know, you're coming up in the 60s and 70s as overweight. It's not like today where there's more compassion for you mm. when you're fat, right? So, like, she got just a ton of just labeling, mean things said to her. She thought mean things about herself, like, literally was offered to get paid like a certain amount of money by people in the family if she lost a certain amount of weight so she can get like a whole f- full new wardrobe, this, that, the other while she was like in high school, right? Mm. So, like you think about that type of stuff, like, that stuff is tough. Mm. And then. It's Yes, trauma. And then eventually my mom went to she moved from New Jersey and she was um she was a teacher and she was living out in um Virginia and so you know me, if you and if you have ever seen me before, I'm I'm a black man. I'm half black, half white, right? Same with my brother. And my brother and I we have different dads. So my brother's dad and my mom got together and had my brother so you can imagine what was it like for my family to have this little black baby right mm-hmm. cuz you know there was no there were no black people in our family yet mm-hmm. at that time and you know my my family like they're not racist but it was one of those things where it's just so different when you're not used to that and it's just like wait what and at the mm-hmm. time my mom and my um my grandparents and really just the whole family, like they weren't getting along very well. But it wasn't until my mom had the baby and decided to like tell everyone like, hey, look, this is like, this is your grandson, this is your, your nephew, mm-hmm. you know, it really brought them back together. My mom actually decided to move back down to um, South Florida where my family had moved from New Jersey to there to kind of have that help and support. And that started to bring them closer together. then you fast forward seven years um, my mom has me and I think it was just an interesting dynamic for her to have um, you know just black kids like it was funny like and I don't really write this in the book but it was really interesting for me growing up where I, I remember having this moment where I thought it was super weird that like wait like my mom's white And and I'm not white (laughs) and all these people that I'm around, whether it's family or playing sports and things like that, it was also a bunch of white kids for the most part. So kind of feeling like the other, like that, I feel like my mom sensed that in me. And because of that, I think that kind of put some type of pressure on her to, um, you know, provide a certain way, act a certain way. And then also too, um, man, she just had, when we talk about her health, like like i don't know exactly why she didn't like to cook when we were young but literally every meal was just always like tv dinners ordering out you know chinese pizza drive-through stuff Mm -hmm. whatever it may be so if i was doing that as a little kid i can only imagine how long my mom had been doing that in her life and that led to a lot of her sickness right and basically being type two diabetic and then having all of this pain and depression and anxiety going on you know it had her using a lot of different medications that would really just mess with her head right mess with her mind mess with her body and because of that she just felt really bad all the time and i think because she didn't have the proper maybe resources at the time to be working with that Mm -hmm. it was kind of just a downward spiral And then it was one of those things, though, where what we talked about earlier, you know, that was just where she was comfortable at. Right. Or at least on the outside is what she showed that she was comfortable with it. Even all the pain that she was going through, you know, how long she would be in the bathroom, whether she was throwing up, not feeling well or just being knocked down on her pain medication. That was still normal for her. And that was more comfortable than the idea of trying to do a bunch of changes or, or do a bunch of things different. And she didn't really have anyone around her. Who was a shining example of how to change. So I could just see, you know, just how she was there because of all those things, mixed in with the fixed mindset of, well, nothing can really change. I can't do anything different. Cause I heard my mom say I can't a whole lot. And then she also had very much this victim mentality of like, why me? Right? Or like, why why aren't all these people coming to help me when I'm doing all these things to help them? And that goes into you know the chapter all about filling your own cup first. And again, me being observant and learning through what other people are doing, that's where I realized like, all right, like the only person that's ever going to be responsible of taking care of my health is me, right? And like I can't depend on someone else to do it for me. It has to be my job. And when I take 100% responsibility for my health and really every aspect of my life, it has me understand like all right, I can make a change whenever I need to. And when I do need help, like it's still on me to go out and seek that help. I can't expect the help to just come in. So it's been really interesting to go through the process of kind of seeing how she grew up and then understanding how that led to me getting a better idea of how I wanted to live my life and how I wanted to grow.
1: You actually talk about that also in, I think the last chapter uh, after your mom's death, you said, I could have, I could have gone down this path of being a victim and and going down this peril, but you had maybe a bit more tools and awareness at this time to not fall into this trap and, and, and turn that into a power in a sense. yeah.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I'm very fortunate that, you know, at that time when my mom did die, you know, for the last maybe like year, year and a half before that, that's when I first started diving into personal development and I started reading different books. I started listening to podcasts and hearing people talk about really these different subjects on like how to better oneself and how it's all about the person doing it and how there's always going to be challenges and all these things. And I'm really grateful that I was already starting to tap into that because if I wasn't into that and say that happened just two years before, I, I could have been much, much different. And I probably would have ended up much different.
1: Mm. Talking about a different Alzi, <laughs> this is the, the other part in the book where I was like, whoa. And I'm not going to spoil the whole chapter. It's in chapter 10, page 101. I'm just going to read uh, two sentences that... Rosie didn't read that, so I think she might be surprised about it as well. <laughs> so it says... You can only imagine the chaos of that scene. My brother is in a headlock. My mum is pointing a knife towards me. And I'm crazed lunatic. Eyes wide. Face red. Ready to put my brother to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I I will let people read the book to know how that happened. Yeah. But this is (laughs) again, like... (laughs) Knowing the Alvidino, I was like, whoa.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: This is not just punching the wall right you know uh, or a
0: little scuffle with your brother where you yeah. just punch each other a few like you know fuck mm. off little punch this is right
1: like... Like, that could have ended very badly
2: oh yeah yeah no that yeah that could have been very ugly and it's so interesting like honestly i think that was probably like top i'd probably say the top moment where i just literally experienced rage like i was just in a rageful like place and mm. It's interesting because we talk about the growth, right? Like how you can never expect that from me now. And this is why I'm so grateful for the tools that that I've been able to develop, you know, over the last, you know, seven, eight years, because all of that rage and all of those things, it's still part of me. It's still there, right? Mm -hmm. I could still like channel it if I was in a life or death situation and, and I needed to be there, right? But this is where a great distinction comes in and this is where mike desanti taught me this when we were having a conversation and it's this distinction between being peaceful and being a pushover Mm -hmm. right so like a pushover is essentially somebody that they can be getting pushed around they can be treated wrong they can be all these things to be happening to them and but the reason why they don't stand up for themselves is because like they're scared That like they'll get hurt even more whether physically emotionally verbally whatever it is Mm -hmm. so they don't say anything versus being peaceful is this idea that i can have all of these crazy things happening around me and depending on if the situation like if it's not life or death for me now it's literally i'm not doing anything about it in that sense like i don't care right but that's the thing it's like i'm able to take that situation And actually like diffuse it by understanding like, all right, look, this isn't that serious. Like, how do we talk through this? What needs to be done? What needs to be better communicated? What needs to be understood? Versus, yeah, like then I had no tools for it. And it's one of those moments where just so many things were shoved down, shoved down, shoved down, shoved down in terms of really because my relationship with myself and where I was in my life versus where I perceived I was quote unquote supposed to be all these things just started to pile up and it it showed up as this crazy blow up and this crazy situation that happened, you know, in the kitchen of my childhood house that um, could have ended up really bad, <laughs> extremely bad. Yeah.
0: How does it feel sharing these stories with the world? Because, you know, having people like Jeremy and myself who we've known you a couple of years, but we didn't know you back then, how does it feel to share these stories that how do I word this? Like don't put you in the best light or you know, you kind of show the tough side or these things that happened. Like, is it empowering? Is it scary? Is it like how does it feel to share these stories at like the deepest, hardest moments of your life?
2: Yeah. I mean it's funny. The first word that comes up for me is that it feels kind of neutral <laughs> right now, mm. in the sense that I've had the highs of like, damn, like, I don't know. Like, this might be too much. Like, what are people going yeah. to think? And then also the lows of like, ah, oh, who cares? Like, you're just speaking your truth. Da, da, da. And so I'm pretty neutral about it now. But what what it's truly about to me is I believe that we all have darkness that we've experienced in our life. We've all hit our own version of rock bottom. And that's what allows us to understand that we're more similar than we are different. And I think we live in a world right now where so many people are just, you know, choosing their sides, picking teams and saying like, you know, the other side is bad and wrong and this and that the other. Where in reality, we show up that same way just in our in our own version of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I feel like putting out these stories and, and really shedding a light on really all of these what would now be seen seen as like uncharacteristic. You know, actions or versions of me to have people understand, like even someone like me who might seem to have it all together when you see me, um, it wasn't always that way. And it's never really always all together. There's always stuff going on in between my ears that like are just crazy and I got I get to snap out of it and be present and all that good stuff. But, you know, we all we all have that darkness, right? It's like it's the yin and the yang. It's the dark versus the light. It's the polarity of life. And I believe that the reason why I can be who I am today and, and enjoy myself, enjoy others, enjoy life at such a high level is because of how low I was during those times. And if I didn't have that comparison, it would be that much harder to be grateful for all the amazing things that are happening in my life
1: yeah to bring a little bit of uh hope and joy in this conversation <laughs> <laughs> talking about pretty dark shit in the beginning right right and, um like you said people can change you're the living proof of that and it's pretty really interesting when uh, again i'm reading the book in chapter three you talk about going back home after being in georgetown for four years Mm -hmm. So you went to university over there, you play D1 football, Um, you're a great athlete and a great student, you graduated and you moved back to Florida, moved back with your mom Mm -hmm. because at this time, financially, you could not afford to live by yourself. So you're 22 at this time. Mm -hmm. And even if you were a great athlete, you actually ended up having an IT recruiter corporate job. Right, (laughs) right. I could not picture you. (laughs) (laughs) Doing. <laughs> right. But, um and yeah, so you know, like that that was nearly 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it was a long journey from graduating college to becoming the author, personal trainer, coach, holistic, lifestyle coach that you are now, you know, and everything right. else you're doing. Businessman, entrepreneur, everything. And you know, when you look at your childhood and everything, it wasn't obvious that you would have reached this level of success, whatever success means to you. But mm-hmm. I think for my standard, you're a successful man at the moment. Thank you. And can you tell us a little bit about the process from, you know, going back home, getting this job that you I'm sure hated yeah, <laughs> to eventually getting into fitness and, you know, this one thing getting into fitness and becoming a personal trainer mm-hmm. to suddenly train NFL athlete. Like that's right. a big gap. You can sure. just stick, you know, with like the, the housewives and the whatever. And and like, how did you end up uh, where you are now?
2: Yeah. Oh man. What what a story. So it's funny when I look at like graduating college and getting that, you know, that first job as a IT recruiter, for me, the biggest thing coming out of college was like, just you got to have a job, right? You got to have a job and that's what's most important. So when I got- Sorry
1: to cut you off. What was your dream, your dream job at this time?
2: As a 22-year-old? Yeah. It's so funny. So during my junior year, I kind of got s- sucked into this idea that most people at George, many people at Georgetown fall into of wanting to get into Wall Street, right? So my, my dream job- at or at like 2021 20, was to be an investment banker mm-hmm. that's what i really thought i wanted to do get into that uh, long story short i ended up getting a making it to the last round of an interview for a for an operations job with uh credit swiss on wall street but i ended up not getting the job so i ended up doing an internship at you're familiar with citrix right mm-hmm. so i was at Citrix systems or just citrix now is what it's called and I had an internship there because one of the former Georgetown grads was a VP of like sales or something like that at the time. So I got put into basically an internship with these, with these sales professionals. And my big project was essentially finding out what all these sales professionals hated about their day-to-day job that they want to offload and not do. And then basically from there, create a whole new role of sales support. Right. So I created in that summer the entire uh, sales support system and onboarded the first three people that they hired for the position into that role during like my last month there. And then, you know, I did a great job. I liked the people there. It was cool. They told me that um, I had a job with them that I was going to start with sales support when I graduated if I wanted it. One of my best friends worked there, like met a lot of cool people there. So I was like, all right, like yeah, this is going to be the job that I go into when I graduate. So that was during my junior year. So typically the way the cycle works when you're in uh, college or we'll say at Georgetown is during the fall, that first semester, that's when everyone applies for like the big jobs. And because we were such a prestigious school, we would have people come to our school and host interviews and do all of that, right? So because I already had a job lined up, I was like, you know what? I'm good. Like I'm not... I'm not going to apply for any of these things. Like, I'm chilling. I'm enjoying my last season of football. I'm enjoying my last, you know, my senior year. Like, y'all go ahead. Like, I wish y'all the best of luck in, in getting these jobs. What ended up happening was, you know, you go through the fall. Now we're into the spring. So now I'm in my last semester of college. And I reach out to my main contact, who I was working under at Citrix. And I basically tell him, like, all right, hey, like, what's, like, i What do I need to do? Like, what's the process to, you know, get this going? And then eventually he gets back to me and says, hey, uh, you know, I went by Danny at the time. Hey, Danny, got some some bad news. You know, we've had a really slow last two quarters and we're actually on a hiring freeze right now. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, shit. Right. So so all these jobs, like most jobs are filled up now. Right. All my friends, they all know where they're going to work. And then that's where in that part of my life, like I had a lot of like comparison syndrome going on where it's just like, fuck, like what are my friends doing versus what I'm doing? Like, mm-hmm. like, am I doing the right thing? Blah, blah, blah. So now I started scrambling, just trying to find jobs that I was just randomly sending out, um, you know, cover letters and all of that to, and resumes to these different places and not hearing back and understanding now knowing the game better. You know, it's a lot more about the relationships you have and who you know. So basically, I scrambled, 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 got an internship to start the summer. And that internship's a whole long story. We're not going to go there right now. That's a, We'll say that for another episode. But that was one thing. And eventually, I got into this IT recruiting. And I just remember, literally, as a 22-year-old, or maybe I was 23, 22, 23, I remember waking up one morning being miserable. And I was like, this can't be the answer like i can't be 23 years old waking up this early being miserable right and then i was making 500 dollars a week right 500 dollars a week is what i was making in my first job out of college plus like you know if you get a placement you get a percentage of that a commission off of the placement all of that well because i didn't like my job very much i wasn't very good at placement so i wasn't <laughs> i wasn't getting a lot of placement uh money for that right so i got to the point eventually actually where it's like I didn't have the courage to just leave on my own, so I just wasn't working that hard, and eventually I got fired from the job, right? I got let go, and that was like, oh fuck! Like I didn't like I was ready to leave, but I didn't want to leave like that, right? And so basically now I have no job, I'm living at home, and now it actually gave me the opportunity to see the like what what do I really want to do? Like yeah, I started applying for some other corporate jobs, but deep down I knew that wasn't it. And what i always knew is i was always interested in sports i was always interested in exercise and things like that and what happened was one of my buddies was doing his pro day training and for people that are listening pro day training is basically after you graduate college and you're done with football you usually do a bunch of testing in terms of like your 40-yard dash you know how much you can bench agility test position skill test all of that scouts see you with the hopes of either getting drafted or getting signed Uh, for training camp right or mini Mm -hmm. camp so my buddy was in that process and he's like yo this place that we're at that he's training called the chamber owned by chris chambers they're looking for interns so like i know you said you're into that type of stuff like maybe you should come in and intern i was like all right so went in um got the internship and come to find out after working in that industry for a long time they'll take free labor whenever they can get it. So, so everyone is accepted for the most part into this uh this internship. So, I was interning there and then at the same time I was like, "Hey, like I really want to start learning about like nutrition and supplementation." So, based off what I knew as a 23-year-old, I was like, "All right, let me get a job at GNC." Right? And then come to find out while I'm at GNC like, you know, 85% of the stuff is crap and then they're just worried as a company they're just worried about you selling the things that had the highest margins. So it was really about helping people like I thought it was. But anyways, I needed to make some money so I was working at GNC and then I had like friends that I started training literally at the park for $10 a session. $10 a session. Right? It's
1: funny to look back at your right? Oh my goodness, <laughs> right?
2: Like spending an hour time with it which I'm very grateful for because that's what kind of got my foot in the doors allowed me to learn on the job and all of that but it but it's funny to see what's like oh, okay i've, been, I've like 30x that so like we can you know for anyone listening if you find yourself you know at a very low point financially just understand you can you can overcome that over time but yeah so basically i was doing four things i was interning at the sports performance gym i was working at gnc i was training a couple people on the side at the park and then the fourth thing I was doing, because this is where I thought I was taking my career, is I was taking prerequisite courses for a doctoral physical therapy program. Because in my head, I was like, all right, I'm going to go back to school so that I can do physical therapy. And because I was at Georgetown, you know, you have the choice you can take math, science, or a combination. I, I hated science back then. So all I did was like the math classes. So I had to go back and take these science classes to learn about the body so I can eventually um, transfer into one of these programs. But honestly, while I was at the sports performance gym called The Chamber as an intern, I just had such a love of watching people better themselves, right? To kind of be in this grind of like moving their body, like trying to improve. I was working with a lot of youth athletes, too, and just seeing these young people develop and get better. And naturally, I always had an eye for it, meaning I could see somebody move and I would know right away if they were doing it correct or not. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know... scientific terms of like why they were doing something wrong what the imbalance was whatever and that's what I learned on the job and basically what happened over time is you know one coach left and they hired me to take that coach's spot and then just you know me I'm a big people person so like I was building such great rapport with the people that I was working with that at one point I had to leave that company because of a disagreement of how I was supposed to be promoted, but I wasn't. And then just the different back and forth of he said, she said, all of that. So I was basically like, all right, F this, I'm out. I'm gonna go do my own thing. And that's when I first actually got into like true entrepreneurship, where I was getting my own clients, training them, doing all of that. And as I was getting better on the physical side of training, that's when around the time, and I talk about this in the book, where I started eating different, right? And as I learned about diet and nutrition and seeing how literally that was the catalyst for my personal development journey, that once I ate better and I felt better, like I was literally a different person. Mm. And I've always been the type of person where if something works for me, I'm like, fuck, I got it. I got to tell everyone else about it. But what I was missing was the skill set of like waiting for permission to actually tell someone something instead of just like grabbing a bag of chips out of their hand, be like, fuck this, like <laughs> you can't be eating this, like throw it out their hand or being at a friend's house and saying, why do you have these things in your fridge? Like it doesn't work that way. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> So what I did was I ended up getting a nutrition certification so that I could teach these types of things um, legally to protect myself, right? So I had the nutrition certification, I started teaching people about nutrition and I would work with my clients on nutrition. And then eventually the, the gym calls me back to come in and work for them again, but it was supposed to be for you know, a separate gym, they were gonna expand all these things. So he had me come in as like the assistant director So that I could do that for a little bit before I could, uh, um, you know, before they open up the new place. I was supposed to be opening up real soon. And basically what that turned into was me just, there was no new place coming. I was just at the same place for a little while. But the person who was above me had a falling out. So they left. And now I was the director of sports performance at the gym. So I basically went from, in a span of like three years, the intern to the director, of sports performance. And as the director, that's what allowed me to have first point of contact with like the high profile people that would come in, especially the athletes. Mm -hmm. So that's when I got the opportunity to work with all these different people. When I got the opportunity to work with Michael Vick to have the opportunity to help these people, you know, better their careers in some type of way. And once you're in that type of circle, where you're working with that level of people and you're doing a good job with them, You know, they all talk to each other. They're talking to their agents, their agency, what happens. And they're just like referring like, oh, you got to go see Danny. Got to go see Danny. Got to go see Danny. And that's what got me to the point of being in that space. And then eventually as director of, you know, this this sports performance gym, I also started to realize that there's politics at the top. Right. And, you know, there's so many things that I thought I was gonna be able to implement that I wanted to implement, but just kept getting shut down. And then eventually the gym i was at was going to be they called it a merger but it was really this other gym was really coming in and and overseeing it and taking it over and all cool people right i met the people that ran in all of that but when they basically told me what my role was going to be it was going to be taking two steps back from what i was already doing and in my head i was just like you know me like i'm not taking any steps back like i'm only i'm either staying here i'm going forward Right. So when that opportunity came, I was just like, hey, I appreciate you offering the opportunity to stay and do this. But, you know, I'm going to go out on my own. And that basically turned into, well, first, me not having a home to bring all my clients. So, you know, I want to shout out my boy, Dr. Stump, uh, Eric Stump. He's a, a chiropractor and he was just starting up his business and he basically offered me the opportunity to rent out a room in his chiropractic office. So this room was probably like maybe 120 square feet. It's like 10 by 12 or something like that. And put a squat rack in there, had the dumbbells in there, the med balls, all the things that I needed. And I would train up to like three people in that little ass spot. (laughs) Yeah. Until until I found um, another place, which was essentially the director that left the chamber, started his own place that was built for basically independent contractors to be able to rent out the space so i went did that and from there that's where like you can too was full throttle full go in terms of me doing my own thing um, and then being able to add in all the things that i wanted to with my clients from a nutrition standpoint from a movement standpoint from a mindset standpoint and then basically the way the projection always looked was as i was adding things to my life seeing what worked and what didn't work for me That's when I would open up the opportunity for my clients to learn about these things if they were open to it. Because what I realized is most of my clients, and we'll say this mostly on like the general population side, not on the athletic side. On the general population side, you know, I have a a woman come to me and say that, you know, she wants to lose 30 pounds. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's always the surface level goal. Mm -hmm. It's like, why do you want to lose 30 pounds? How's your life going to be different? When you're 30 pounds lighter, how are you going to feel about yourself? How are you going to show up in the world? What are the things that you're not doing right now that you could be doing if you were 30 pounds lighter? Yeah. And basically, we started diving deeply into the mindset of things, into the you know self-perception of things so that I could help this woman understand, like, look, like these things that you're not doing, you don't have to wait until you're 30 pounds lighter to do them. You can start doing those things. You can start embodying those ways of being. And we're still going to lose the 30 pounds along the way. And then as a personal trainer, anyone listening that works with people in that space, you already know you're kind of sitting there as like a therapist or a psychologist. Like my clients, they'll just let everything out and they'll talk about things with me that they wouldn't talk with other people about ever, right? It gives them like their opportunity to vent. And within that, I started to realize like, hey, there's so much more. That I could be helping people with and that's where you look now in in 2022 all of my work is geared towards helping people get in the best shape of their lives physically mentally emotionally and spiritually and doing that in a healthy and sustainable way and I understand that that's gonna look different for every single person but now it's just realizing that the person that I work with like they just have to be committed to putting in the work and and are open to being guided to getting there. But at the same time, they're taking 100% responsibility for where they're at. And they understand that they're 100% responsible for getting themselves out of it. So it's been quite the um, the transition from IT recruiter to now running can too in the way that I run it.
0: It's interesting though, because like you said before, you kind of just assume that the person that you meet today is the person who they've always been. And I never knew where Mr. Yukantu came from. And it's interesting to kind of see all the different routes that you took and the different things and how you got there in the end. It's I think it's really interesting to find out how people got to where they are and not just like, this is who I am and accept it kind of thing. Yeah, for so sure. thank you for sharing.
2: No, my pleasure. My pleasure. And I think it's something that's important. I hope that more people feel empowered to share their stories in this type of way because that's what i think brings us together the most are like the vulnerable moments right because majority of us we can all resonate in some type of way when someone else is going through something especially going through something bad because we can recognize sadness really fast because we know what it's like to be sad so i think when people tell their story in a open and vulnerable way gosh that's so powerful and there's so much that other people can learn from it. And I look at myself like, I'm no, I'm no superstar, right? Like I'm not no huge, crazy name, but I I resonate with a lot of these other people who are really big names because they all have really similar stories or like they have their version of that story, just like all of us have our version of that story. So if we can understand how powerful our story is, how powerful our messages are, and we can just get out in the world and start talking about it in a proactive way if a person's feeling called to that I think that's going to uplift everyone around us
0: I think it's great to hear these stories as well of people who have gone from working in a job that maybe they don't enjoy to then you know a couple of years later after a lot of hard work and dedication it's not you know it doesn't happen overnight but then now working for yourself being successful being happy making the money you want to make being comfortable like all these different things it can happen and if you're stuck in that like job that you don't want to be in you know there is proof and there is people who are can make their dreams come true and it is something that is attainable for everybody so
2: a 100% and to that point something that I always held on to that gave me the courage to go and you know seek out entrepreneurship is in my head I was like you know what like worse comes to worse I can always fall back on my Georgetown degree I can get a, a 70k a year job and like I'll be okay like if worse yeah. came to worse and I bring that up now for others to realize like say you are in a job that you don't love and you want to go try something new but you're afraid for whatever reason. No one can take away your job experience, no one can take away your degrees, they can't take away your credentials. Worst comes to worst you can always go back to what you were doing. Yeah. Right? So you don't have to be scared it's to take a leap of faith. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. It's not going to get worse, right? You can always go back to where you were, so keep
1: that in mind.
0: Yeah.
1: I got one last question for Mr. You can too <laughs> got gotcha. you.
0: Um,
1: not probably an, an easy question, but it's something that came to mind at the end of the book for me. And it's, it's related to what you say in chapter six, when you talk about, actually, you were just talking about that when you started learning about wellness and being healthy and when you change your diet and everything, mm-hmm. you're kind of shooting your mom. Like, you should be eating this. You should right. be doing that and that, and that, and that didn't work right at all. And that created tension more than anything oh, else. Oh, for sure. And um, you didn't have the tools at this time. And the lesson from this chapter is you need to meet people where they are. And you need to help them from a place of, you know love and compassion rather than just trying to stuff the face with whatever you want right right and and also you mentioned that also something important is that you can't force people to change if they don't want to right you can have the best intention in the world all the love in the world all the tools in the world if someone doesn't want to change they probably won't change right so my question is with all the tools and knowledge you have right now and the experience you have right now, do you think that knowing that your mom wasn't maybe fully willing to change, do you think that you would have been able to help her right now with all the tools you have now?
2: It's mm, a great question. So when I think about that, cause that's something I think about actually pretty often, and I look at it, and I talk about this in the book. Like, my mom, she started making some changes, right? Big changes from where she originally was, right? From being just on her bed, just all the time. And for me, the problem was it wasn't good enough for me. It's like, no, you should be doing more. So I think if she was alive today, you know, it would still be a challenge because that's my mom. And as I'm sure y'all know, parent relationships are uh, very complex and it could be, be, it has like its own dynamic to it. But what I would say is number one, I would have loved my mom unconditionally, right? Like I would have been there for my mom and supported my mom in her doing whatever it was that she was doing through her swimming, through some walking, through simply eating more real food. Like well, I would have helped her from there. And I think a huge thing would have been letting her know, like, hey, how can I help you? Like, is there anything that I could be doing to help you in this process? Is there any information that you need? Or And then from there, just taking my hands you know, off of the wheel and not trying to control it. And basically saying, like, look, I'm here. I'm going to continue to lead by example. You can see how these things are working out for me. And I think the biggest way that that would have really shined through would have been through how I treated my mom, right? Mm -hmm. Because looking back, it's like, yeah, I was making all of these changes and, you know, I might've been a lot nicer to my friends. I might've been a little bit nicer to myself. I might've been losing weight and all these things, but I was still being really shitty to my mom at the time. So I think if I was being just a lot more just nice with her, agreeable with her, like just showing her that unconditional love knowing how she always wanted to like do things for me, I think she would have realized that her changing her health would have been like the best thing for her and what I would have wanted the most and I think over time she would have gotten to the point where she's like okay I'm ready like wh- like tell me about this little thing or tell me about this thing and I would just try to give her that little thing instead of trying to throw the the kitchen sink at her right but I think it's so interesting because you know even now, If I'm not careful, I I can have very similar, I won't call it an outburst because I don't really burst out like that anymore. But like, I can have a relationship like that with my brother, where, you know, I see some of the things he does. And to me, it's just like, yo, this doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing this? But like, get angry about it as opposed to meeting him where he's at. So there's a part of me that still thinks like, yeah, it would have been super difficult um, with my mom to some type of extent. But again, it all starts with me and how I wanted to show up to that situation. And the last thing I'd wanna leave the listeners with is understand that it's always gonna be hardest with your parents or with the person that you love, the people you love the most, right? So when I look back at my situation with my mom, it's like I loved her so much and I wanted her to change so much that I couldn't keep my cool in helping her change. Like if I saw her doing something that was clearly self-sabotaging and hurting herself, like I would just be livid. I'd be so angry and upset. But if that was one of my clients or even just, you know, uh, an associate or something like that, I wouldn't have been nearly as emotionally charged as I am. So, you know, realize that that emotional charge um, gets to be worked with. And that's where like the the inner work and the personal skills and the meditation and the reading and the walks and all the things we do to fill our own cup is so important because when that emotional charge is low, we can come from more of a, really like a neutral place. I think that's when communication is most effective. And then from there, being able to understand like, all I can do is, is speak my part, right? And offer the help. One, if it's re- involving somebody else, I'll never be able to control that person. But it was the idea that I could control my mom and make her change that was one of my biggest like downfalls. Because every time she didn't do something that I wanted her to do, I took it personally, and I got angry about it. And then now I would flip that on her instead of realizing like, hey, that's... that's she's her own person. Mm. And she's going to do what she thinks is best for her. And if I try to change that and I'm not happy with it, the only person I'm hurting is myself, right? I'm losing my energy. I'm giving my power away. And I see that a lot with a lot of people and I'm able to recognize it because it was so alive in me for so long.
0: Something that struck me there was when you said about asking, how can I help you? Like, what can I do to help you? And I think that's something that oftentimes when you try and help people you do things without asking if that's what they want you to do right and I think that's something that's quite an important message it's not just to impose yourself on people or you know it doesn't have to be about health and wellness it can be about if somebody's going through heartbreak or losing someone or like lost their job or whatever it is it could be okay how can I support you what can I do to help you rather than just like doing things and hoping for the best and right. that maybe you aren't necessarily helping or not necessarily what they would want you to do to help I think that's quite I don't know, it kind of stuck with you that when you said that.
2: Yeah, I think it's really important to, to ask for permission in those yeah. types of sense, right? Because, you know, people are, are, everyone's different, right? And I've realized, like, kind of if you ever read like the five love languages, right? It's like, what's my love language and how I like to show love might not be how someone wants to receive it, right? Mm-hmm. So instead I, I got to find out like, hey, like, how do you want to receive this type of love or this type of help? And if it's something that I'm willing to do, then perfect, I'll do it that way. But if they don't want help like i'm helping them by just keeping my distance and doing what they ask as long as they're not directly hurting themselves or someone else
1: mm. yeah and i think something important that you said also is it's very hard way harder to help and in your case coach people that are close to you oh right and i don't know <laughs> i feel that if if i had these skills and even if i could do it i think i would rather just pay someone else to coach this person rather oh, than for it myself sure. i think it would be much easier 100 percent. because you can't be as you know
0: neutral
1: yeah neutral and objective you would be when if he was just a random person oh, it, yeah. you just can't it, you, even the best guy i think could not coach his mother oh for
2: sure uh, for sure and everything that i've seen like Pretty much most of these places recommend, like you don't work with family or friends or or close ones in in that type of sense. And yeah, I agree. I feel like the biggest thing I could have done was, you know, referred someone of these amazing people that I know now to her would have been amazing.
1: Hmm. Alvi, thank you so much. Everyone, if you want to get the book, it's available on Amazon.com.uk.fr, anywhere. Uh, Available worldwide, I think. You can do Life lessons from my mom's untimely death by Alvi Thompson Jr. <laughs>
2: hey, I appreciate that. Appreciate the time. It's, I always love spending time with y'all, whether it's on the podcast or just over Zoom, hanging out, catching up on life. Uh, love what y'all have been doing. And for those of you listening, you know, I don't know if my po i probably would not have a podcast right now if it <laughs> wasn't for Jeremy, because he, he gave me a nice swift kick in the ass to <laughs> hurry up and get started right around the same time he was getting started and. You know i use the same platform as him and anytime i have a question <laughs> or a concern i'm like jeremy help <laughs> so jeremy my brother i appreciate all the ways that you help me rosie i'm so happy that we're such close friends and we've been able to grow together and no matter where we are on this world we're still always connected yeah
1: rosie i just realized that when we had you at the guest episode one we didn't have this little tradition oh. of asking the last question that we ask every guest Ooh so would have been
0: okay so the question is if you could have a conversation with anybody dead or alive famous or not famous who you think would be super interesting you would love to talk to who would you choose and why
2: oh man it's such a it's so funny the first thing that popped in my head is my mom but yeah. but out, outside of that i would love to have a deep conversation with uh michael bernard beckwith He's alive. I don't know if you've ever seen him or read any of his stuff, but he's a um, I guess you can call him like a spiritual teacher. Uh he runs agape. Uh but the way he talks about spirituality and just his way of being and how he shows up for things, like he's an incredible man. He's literally the person that I got dynamic blessings from. Like I heard him say dynamic blessings and I was just like, oh my god, like that's powerful. I like that. I'm gonna start yeah. saying that. So uh yeah, I would pick him. Michael Bernard Beckwith. Y'all should check him out. Great dude.
1: Interesting. Never heard of him. Yeah, I'll check it out. I, after reading the book, I thought you would have picked your pop as well. Oh
2: man, that's a yeah, that's a close third one. Yeah, it would be crazy. It's funny too, because like I said, um, in, earlier in the conversation, you know, I learned so much more about my mom through um just the conversations with my uncles. I learned a lot more about my grandfather too, and just to see just mm-hmm. the character that he is, and you know, it, it's just crazy just to see how much him and I have in common um and just how much love everyone in our family has for him is um mm-hmm. is unbelievable so yeah it would be absolutely incredible to have a really powerful conversation with him now and to be honest with you I had have a conversation with him not too long ago in a uh, a plant medicine ceremony where he was with me and we had a nice long talk so yeah he, he's definitely in there might have to put together a little round table yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much, Alvy, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for the book. I can't wait to read it. Um, Jeremy's been raving about it. I think, I'm think i sure it's going to be incredible.
2: I <laughs> uh, appreciate that.
0: Um, thank you so much. Everybody, go and buy the book. Go and listen to the podcast. Go and follow him on social media. We'll leave everything linked in the show notes. You can go ahead and do that. Go and say hello if you've listened to this episode as well. And we'll be back next Wednesday with a brand new episode. 101. 101. Hey.
1: Stay tuned. Hey. Bye. Bye. Ciao, ciao. Ciao. <laughs>